Thomas Sowell's Race and Culture is an excellent book. The subtitle is A World View. Race and Culture. A World View. Thomas Sowell is a black American who is brilliant and worked at a number of institutions, finally teaching at the Hoover Institute. As far as I can tell, he is not a believer, but he is a careful and thoughtful man. He has written many books, and they are, every one that I've read, I think I've read half a dozen or so of them, And they are excellent. His book on basic economics is fantastic. I gave it to someone. Waste more. And I probably should not have given him my book. (laughs) I hope he read it though. If he read it, it'll be worth it. But, But here we've got the book Race and Culture. And I want to start by telling you the point of the whole book. His point in this book is that if you look at the differences of ethnic groups, Indians and Chinese, Irish and Japanese, Zimbabweans and Somalians. If you look at those groups and you compare how much money they get, how high they go in their education, how many children they have, if you compare those factors, the differences between those groups comes mostly from cultural choices, much more so than from biology. Does that make sense? Or the environment. So when you look and you see, let's say, the Somalians are doing very well in Limpopo, for example. There are a number of Somalians here, and in general, they have cars, and they're building houses. And you say, why is it that the Somalians, if you compare 1,000 Somalians and 1,000 Tsongas, probably Somalians are making more money on average than the average Tsonga. And if you want to ask yourself, why? The point of this book is, do not say Tsonga blood is bad and Somalian blood is good. Do not say Tsonga DNA is bad and Somali DNA is good. Further, do not say Tsonga... Environment, the people that live around them are bad, and the people that live around the Somalians are good. Rather, look to the cultural choices of the Tsongas and the cultural choices of the Somalians, and you will find the difference, the, the, the cause of those differences. That's the point of the book. But it's a fascinating book, so let's try to go into it in a little more depth than that. There are eight chapters in this interesting book, and I'd just like to read to you from different places um, some of the best lines from the book. 
If a group's own culture and the skills, behavior, and performances derived from that culture are the primary determinants of its economic and social fate, then groups which rise from poverty to prosperity don't need to be involved in politics. They don't need to be successful in politics. Did you follow that? If a group's culture and skills and behavior makes them successful, then it doesn't really matter if they are, if, if someone from their group is the president. It doesn't matter if someone from their group is the big man. If they become successful because of their own cultural habits, it's that that's the goal. There's the treasure. The treasure is those cultural habits that helped them come to this place. The purpose of this book is to demonstrate the reality, persistence, and consequences of cultural differences. That's the point of this book. He's trying to show you when you see differences between white and black, don't think, well, it's because of slavery. It's because of apartheid. Think it's the consequences of cultural differences. And he has on here the title, A Worldview, because, let me see if I can find this. He traveled internationally four times. He he says somewhere in here that he went around the world, I think it's three times, to get the information for this book. He wrote this book over a course of ten years. He had several assistants helping him to gather the information because the book stops the book stops on page 259 and from 259 to 330 it's all the end notes these are the books that he cited that's where the real work came he had to read all those books every one of those is a different book he had to read Several hundred books in here that he had to read in order to write that this book. And I read the end notes carefully because I want to see what books he's using. Yes. This book is the first one. Race and culture. Two years later, he wrote a book called Conquests. And culture. Two years later, maybe four years later, a few years after that, he wrote Migrations and Culture. I have not read the other two in their entirety, but I have read this one very carefully. I have read parts of the other two, and what it looks like is the other two are saying the same thing as this one, just with a lot more examples. So I have to get to those and I'll let you know. But I think we'll get the main point here. There is an idea in life, in America and here, that tries to say, if someone is poor, it's not their fault. Well, then where are they going to put the blame? 
Because wherever you put the blame is what you're going to change. Okay? If the fault is mine, then I have to change what? Me. But if the fault is her, then I've got to change her. And if I can't get at her, I've got to find people to get her on my behalf. There is an idea that's gone on for many years that wants to blame the, the problems of life on another group of people. In the 20th century, in America, it became very popular to blame the problems of poor groups on the groups that had more money. Doesn't that sound like what's happening here? In South Africa, we blame the richer group for the problems of the poor group. And what Thomas Sowell does in this book is he challenges that idea with these facts and the studies. But let me give you a little more background to show you why that's important. If you think that the problems facing black South Africans come from whites, then you might want to support BEE. Or is it BE, Black Economic Empowerment? What's the other one they had now? BB, BBEE, Broad-Based Black Economic Empowerment. Because they found out that only 5% of the blacks were being helped by BEE. So they said, we don't want to help 5%, we want to help 100%. So let's call it BBEE, Broad-Based Black Economic Empowerment. And the main goal behind it Black economic empowerment is we take taxes from the companies and people that have a lot of money. In general, that has turned out to be whites. We take the money from them and we give it with grants, social grants and SASA grants, to those who don't have it. And that, that's going to fix the problem because those people are poor because those people took it from them. That's, that's the thinking. Now, I am not denying that some people took some things and hurt some other people. I'm not denying that. The question is not, did some people do some bad things? The question is, what is the cause of the, of the poverty in 19... 2000 in 2020 or 1994 or 1974. That's the question. And that's what he's asking. He's, well, what is the cause of this poverty? And he treats South Africa often in this book, by the way. Many people in the government try to say that the cause of poverty is structural inequality. What they mean is there's these structures, schools, courts, prison, police, these structures. So the police is a structure and it's not equal because if the police see, they say, this is what they say. If the police see a black man driving, they say, hey, let's get him. But if they see a white man driving, they'll say, Let's lay off that one. So that's, this is what they mean when they say a structural inequality. Or they'll say, 
if a white man walks in to get a job and puts his CV down and a black man walks in and puts his CV down, the manager is going to say, ah, the black man, ah, I don't like him. Oh, the white man, I like him. And they'll go further and they'll say the, structure and the structural inequality goes to this. If the black man comes in and has 10 years of experience working in this, in this field and he's been a manager and he's strong and sharp and he comes in and says, I want the job. And a white guy comes in, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I want the job, man. Hey, yeah, let me, yeah, give me a job. But still they'll choose the white man and reject the qualified black man. And so they say that is structural inequality. And then they'll go on and say that there's all these children who don't have food. And the reason is apartheid. And apartheid is the reason the kids don't have the food. Structural inequality. And they'll do lots of... But you get the idea, right? Do we understand the idea? And we can go... Just let me do a few more to make sure we really get the idea. If you go to prison, you see that Blacks make up something like 82% of the population in this country. But blacks make up something like 97% or 98% of all the prison inmates in Sintumule Kutama. Why are there more blacks in the prison than there are percentage-wise in the country? There are 82% of the country and then something like 7-8% is white and 6% is Indian and 3% is Chinese and something other. Something like that. But... Blacks are 82% of the country, 97% of the inmates. How can that be? The the blacks in the prison should be what percent? 82%. 82%. It's a structural inequality. That's what they say. So are you with me on it now? Do you understand? So if you come in to apply for a job, you don't get the job because you're black. It's not your fault. You can't do anything about it. You go to prison, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. I'm in, uh. um, and, and you see that going over and over. Your police, you're driving the road, they pull you over. Hi, hey, give me a ticket. I didn't do anything. It's just I'm black. All right? That's the idea. And he is trying to ask is that true? Is it true? D- do, do, blacks, do blacks have a hard life because whites are pushing them down? Or is there something different? So in this book, he's going to go through eight chapters. The first chapter is an introductory chapter. And then you can see the the summaries right here. Look look on page 32. The first one is a worldview. And from there, he's going to go to conquest, then race and economics, race and politics, Race and intelligence, race and slavery, race and history. I'm sorry, I skipped chapter two, migration. And in each of these, you get the idea that he's showing what does race have to do with each of these categories? Well, I'm just going to have to go through these very briefly for time. But notice that number two, migration and culture. It's a fascinating chapter. And in this chapter, what Sol shows us is people move according to their cultural habits. So if people think 
If their culture allows them more freedom, some people's culture says, you've got to stay at home. Some people's culture says, go, go. So those people who have an idea that says, go, what are they going to do? They're going to look and say, could I make more money in Ghana? Could I make more money in Malawi? Let me take my children and go there. Let me try and see what happens. His, in chapter 2, he argues, migration and culture shows a lot that overthrows the idea of structural inequality. And in that chapter, he shows on migration and culture that, for example, the Italians, when they came to America, Italian-Americans, they ended up making more money than other groups. Why is that? Because... There was structural inequality? No, it turned out that the Italians were blocked out of certain trades when they came to America because of racism. The white Americans didn't like these other white Americans who were coming in to take their jobs, so it forced the Italians to go into banking. And now the Italians are rich, and the guys who oppressed them 100 years ago are saying, so fair. Why are the Italians the bankers? Because you guys did it. <laughs> and now they're, they're making more money because in the past, they weren't looking to do that. They're, hey man, let me just have this. They had no choice and they were pushed out. The same thing is true with, he shows this in there, uh, Jews and the clothing industry. I didn't know this. But apparently in America, the Jews, especially in New York, dominate the clothing industry. At least that's what he said in his studies. And there's been talk that it was because of racism that the Jews have all this power in the clothing industry. Well, actually, and so they're saying the Jews are bad people and the government should pull some of the Jews out of the clothing industry. Well, actually, the way it happened was the reverse. When the Jews got there, they wanted to take Saturday off because Saturday was their holy day, and they wanted to work on Sunday when the others who were Christians wanted to take off. And because of that, that difference in the days, the only, not the only, but the industry that they commonly moved into was a clothing industry. And if you look at the history, you find out that it's not, it's not racism. It's not, the Jews aren't bad because they dominate in the clothing industry. And the other guys aren't bad because they... Here's another part he puts in there. Um, I can't remember. Is this in migration or is this in... Um, this is in four. I think it's in race and economics. He says, many Jewish communities are very tight. They work together. They live together. And when Jews want to get married, they commonly marry from the Jewish community. They don't marry too often outside the Jewish community. And... When they work, they commonly work closely within the Jewish community. And so some people have said, there again, that's an example of racism. And he said, not really, but their religion and their work ethic causes them to want wives who have that similar culture. I don't have a problem with that. If, if a guy really says, this is what I like. I, I like a woman who acts this way and I, I grew up that way. I, this is what my mother cooked for me. I liked the way she cooked. It's not a problem. And so he, he points out some of those things. 
Um, let, me, let me go to chapter 6. Race and intelligence. This is a... This is a fiery chapter. They're all good. Oh, race and politics is really... Okay, let me just make a comment about race and politics. He makes the, the point here that many racial groups think that the way to improve their group is to get involved in politics. And so he discusses the Irish, both in Ireland and in America. There's a lot of facts from different... He goes all around the world, but I'm just giving the ones that, are, that I remember coming to my head here. He shows the Irish, both in Ireland and in America, they were, they were a very poor group. So because they're poor, they think to themselves, the way we'll get ahead is if an Irishman is the politician. If, he's, if he can represent us to the government, then, we'll, then it won't be so hard for us. He lists in here how many Irishmen have been politicians. And they still say, they still stay poor. Irish are one of the poorest immigrant groups in all of America. Why? They chase after politics. There's been an Irish president, Irish senators, Irish politicians at every level, and even today there are Irishmen at every level of politics in America. But the Irish group is still one of the lowest immigrant scoring in test scores and producing in wealth. Why? Are the Irish just stupid? Is there blood? No, not at all. In this chapter in race and politics, he shows some cultures think that their path to success is politics. He shows in the chapter on politics, politics never make groups rich. If there's a poor group that says we've got to take control of the political structure, you can be sure that group is going to continue to be poor. I thought, how interesting of the fights between language groups here. A group that fights for political power is a group that is focusing on the wrong concerns. Because, as he's going to show in the, in the previous chapter, race and economics, the group that has the most economic devotion, the most devotion to work, is usually the group that goes up. Oh, here's, here's an interesting one from race and economics, the chapter on economics. He shows... When Somalians migrate to other African countries, they are consistently richer than the people they come to. So, for example, this is not in the book, but this is an example of the kind of thing that is in the book. Somalians will come to Jimmy Jones. And when they come to Jimmy Jones, they're very poor, but they start a spaza shop. And everyone likes the spaza shop. So after time, he adds shovels and then wheelbarrows. And pretty soon, he's selling other things, Mugayo and cold drink and mayonnaise. And he's got other things, and his shop grows, and he builds another one. So now it's growing, and then you find out there's Tsongas who say, ah, he's the foreigner. Ah, that guy. Ah, you know these guys. They're stealing from us. When in reality, if you took away the Somalian's shop, all of the people in the village would be what? They would be poorer. We're really glad that Somalian's here. He shows a study of Somalians who traveled from their country to other country consistently. Somalians were content to go without their wives, which means they can save a lot of money. They were content not to have a house, but to live in the shop where they worked. That meant they could have very long hours. 
You can sell from very early until very late because you're always at the shop. And he said repeatedly they found out in the study Somalians slept on the counter where they sold the goods. They wouldn't even get a bed so that they could put everything back into the shop. And then he said, but compare that with indigenous groups. And he does this from many countries. If you look at indigenous groups, I don't remember the exact countries, but they're in the book there. For an example, the Congolese. If a Somalian comes to Congo and he starts to sell, the Somalian sleeps on his counter and he's really uncomfortable and he misses his wife and he misses his kids, but every penny back into the shop so I can put wheelbarrows out next month. Then every penny back into the shop so next month I can sell bricks and on and on. Then bicycles and, and then he keeps growing. The same group, when they first see the Somalians, they love him. But after a few years, they begin to hate him because he's successful. But the studies showed that the other people worked fewer, the indigenous population worked fewer hours and spent their money on luxuries for themselves. Like they said, I'm not sleeping on the ground, I want a bed. Fine, buy a bed. I don't care if you buy a bed, but don't buy your bed and then walk to the Somalian guy and say, ah, ah, this guy. If he doesn't want to sleep on a bed, let him have his shop. <laughs> if you want to sleep on a bed, then sleep on a bed. That's freedom. And he shows the Somalians were one example. Consistently, Somalian immigrants come in dirt poor and they work the longest hours wherever they go in the world and they go up consistently. Now, is that because of the blood of the Somalian? It's the culture. Back in Somalia, they said, we work hard, we work hard. They move out and they do the same thing. Somalians are going up because of their culture, not because, well, they're going to be so powerful politically. There's no Somalians in the, in the uh, government in South Africa. Why are the Somalians flooding in here? Why is the Somalian on the Elam Road, before you get to the four-way stop on the left-hand side, it used to be Bafana Bafana, King is Jesus only, Spaza, right across from Sweetwaters. Have you seen that? It's now this huge one. It's growing. Why? I went in there the other time. I bought some cold drink there. And I said, hey, where do you stay? Oh, I stay right here in the shop. Ah! I should have known. You stay right there in the shop. But who's building a bigger shop? The Somalian. And eventually, he's going to be able to pass that on. But he's going to do it because of 20 years, that guy pushed off all his pleasures. He didn't drink the cold drink. He sold it to you to drink. You drink the cold drink, he saves his money. At the end, who's clever? Ah, it's no, no, it's racism. That's ah, racism. See, that's, that's why he calls this a worldview. There's a way of looking at the world that is common, that people say, if someone is successful, I'm jealous of them, or I'm angry about that person. And if someone is not successful, then I don't have so much problem. Let me go quickly to race and intelligence. Oh, this is so fascinating. He says, black Americans consistently score low on IQ tests. An IQ test is a test to determine how clever you are. 
And he says, blacks in America consistently score low. He's a black, okay? And he says, so, about 80 years ago, there were studies being done on how to raise those scores. That makes sense, right? If someone, if someone takes a test and they score here and all the other people score here, then I want to find out how to make those guys go up. But remember, it's a worldview. So the people on the other side said, no, you can't give blacks intelligence tests anymore. So in America, in many states in America, the government will not allow blacks to take intelligence tests. Why? Because they don't want to deal with the cause, which is culture. It has nothing to do with the blood. Black people are clever. They can write books. The guy who's writing is a black guy. And he's brilliant. And there are many more like him. He's not the only black author I have in my study who is a thoughtful, articulate man. No, it's the issue of culture. But the politicians in power know, here's what we can do. We can shout about racism. And by shouting about racism, we'll get more votes. And by getting the votes, we stay in power. It doesn't matter that the path we're taking will keep those people scoring low all the time. Now, see, on my side, I don't want that group to score low because I know that group is not stupid. And if we change some things, that group can score here or even higher. But the politicians are going to come in and say, hey, hey, that's racist. And they've actually said that reporting the test scores in America of black people is racist. If you report the test scores, you are not allowed to speak that kind of truth. And I say it's actually racist in the reverse because you're saying black people are so fragile and weak that they can't take the truth. If we tell them, I'm sorry, look, um, uh, whites are scoring like 75, 80% and blacks are scoring 50%. You got to fix that. I want your kid to go up. I want your kid beating my kid. Okay? Can we work at this? Now see, I would say that. Let's find a way to fix that problem and go up. But the other side says, no, that's racist. Rather, don't tell them. Which is more racist? Not telling you the problem that is keeping you and your children poor? So... He blasts that in this chapter in intelligence. And he says, IQ tests are tricky anyway because they don't... What, what an IQ tests report is things like how well you can remember uh, facts that were connected in the book. But that's not necessarily what makes a person clever. I know a man who connects facts very well and scores high on an IQ test but he has failed repeatedly in business and been fired from companies in business. I know that man in the U.S. He has lost his job repeatedly and he has failed in business and he got in big problems with the government over his taxes because he couldn't do his taxes correctly. But his IQ scored high and I know another man who did not score high on IQ but was a brilliant businessman not because, because IQ only measures certain things like can you remember what subsequence is? You know, I can't. 
I can't really remember subsequence. That doesn't determine how clever you are or how well you're going to do in economics. He discusses all that in the chapter. IQ tests have some good, but only some good. And we should use them for the some good they are and not use them for the other good that's there. Uh, oh, guess what group in America scores the highest? Chinese American. Chinese score by far the highest. Not close, by far. And Chinese who come from poverty score higher than rich white kids. So when they say, oh, you just scored high because you're rich and you get to go to the best schools, then how do you answer the poor Chinese who outscore the rich white constantly? Because it has nothing to do with money and everything to do with culture. It is common, he records in here, it is common for the Japanese and Chinese Americans to not allow their children to be involved in sports and to force them to be involved in every extra studies program so they're involved they have to take music instrument music music lessons because music makes the mind sharper and they have to go to the early lessons at school and the late lessons at school and they said suicide rates are very high among asian americans for the youth because they are pressed so hard to perform so now you have to ask yourself that too is it worth being the highest if it also means we have a lot of suicide because our kids are driven to despair when they fail. But that's culture. Now, I don't like the suicide, but they are working hard. Do you want to pay the price to be the top? Then pay the price. If you don't want to pay the price, then shut up and sit down. But, but at, least, at least in this book, at least he tells me what the price is. The price is my culture. Am I willing to change my culture? He records in here <clears throat> the average time, the average amount of time that Asians spend on homework. It's far more than other groups. That's why they do so well. They spend more time. They're willing to devote their, their energy to those things. I am spending Saturday on evangelism. I'm taking my kids out on evangelism. They might not score so well. I don't care. <laughs> As long as Jesus comes back and says, well done, fantastic, right? But if I do, if I say, I want you to be the best of the best, then Saturday, no more Valdezia, man. Hit the books. Soccer, shut up and study. So those are, those are some of the things in intelligence, and, and there's so much more. Oh, it's so much more. But I've got to go to this very quickly. I know our time is out. It's really out. Uh, quickly here, slavery. The chapter on slavery is the best in the book. Chapter seven, slavery is the best in the book. Although, although, okay, one more comment here in chapter three, conquest and culture. Conquest and culture has five pages on colonialism where Thomas Sowell says, Britain colonized the world and they lost money on it. It is a very common um, idea tossed around that Britain went to steal the money from Africa. Britain lost money on every colony they had, which is ultimately why they gave up all their colonies. No one had more colonies than Britain, and Britain lost more money. And guess what was the main motive for Britain's colonizing? It was pressed by a group in 
Britain. There was one group in Britain that pressed Britain constantly to colonize more than any other group. It was the British Christians who were trying to send missionaries and they found that the missionaries couldn't get farther inland because there weren't police and there weren't roads. So the British Christians in Britain said, please go colonize Africa, colonize so that our missionaries can get there. And the British people said, we don't want to colonize, I'm wasting our money, I'm wasting our time. Let's do this and do this. We got these other things to do. And the British Christians kept pressing the British missionary lobby was the most powerful group pressing the British government to go on with colonization. And Britain sent out by far more missionaries in the 19th century than anyone else. So much of the Bibles that we have that we read now are because those Christians were saying, go colonize. All you hear today is that colonialism is bad. Colonialism is bad. Colonialism brought the Bible. Full stop. I am very sorry that whenever you have people, you're going to have bad things done. Yes, some whites did some wicked, wicked things. Guess what? There was a competition for who could be bad. The whites were bad, but so was Shaka Zulu. Who killed more blacks than Zulu? The guy killed two million in Devele. Yo, so colonialism did do some bad things, but he says in the book, don't think for a moment that colonialism was about how to make money for the whites. They didn't want to do it. They said, these businesses are failing. This is wasting our time. But the missionaries kept coming and saying, no, no, you got to colonize them so our missionaries can get in. That I, I never knew that. That was shocking to me when I read that. Uh, race and slavery, best chapter in the book. Best chapter in the book. His chapter on race and slavery shows how slavery is in fact one of the oldest and most widespread institutions on earth. Slavery existed. It's older than Islam, Buddhism, or Christianity. He lists how many countries were involved in the slave trade. It's almost every country in the history of the world. Almost every country. Everyone is involved in the slave trade. Guess who was first to be involved in the slave trade in Africa? Kenya. Kenya's first. Black Kenyans went inland to somewhere, Uganda, somewhere. They went inland and they stole other black people, brought them out and gave them to Muslims in Somalia to buy. Muslims came down for hundreds of years and... As soon as the Kenyan kings realized, oh, these guys will give us money if we, let's go. They bring their slaves back, they get lots of money. Later on, the Europeans saw it, and it started with the Catholics, by the way. The Catholics in Portugal in 1400, 600 years after the Muslims had been slave trading, millions of blacks brought by Kenyans. That's when Portugal said, Hey, we can do this. So the Pope, remember, the Pope is not Christian. It's Catholic. Catholic is not Christian. The Pope said, I give full right to the Portuguese and only the Portuguese to enslave the entire African continent. So Portugal comes down and starts stealing Africans. How does he get them? Europeans did not travel inland. They would only get to the edge and stop. They, right? Are you with me? They get to the coast. 
and stop. Why? Because they died so quickly. The average life expectancy for a European who came to Africa was less than a year because he wasn't accustomed to the diseases. So because of that, he would get to the edge and say, here we got money, you guys want to bring us some slaves. But that means who was involved in the slave trade? Africans. And I'm not saying, the point in this, and he says this in the book is, everyone is bad. There are no good guys in this story. They're all bad. And he says it over and over. And he says, the question is only, which one of all the bad guys did any good? And his answer is, only the British Empire stopped slavery. Only. But the British Empire started it. The British Empire. And today, you will hear people in Britain saying, I'm ashamed of being a Briton. Oh, we white people are so wicked. Yeah, you are wicked. But at least you stopped it. Muslims didn't stop it. There were Muslim slave traders in, um, in Saudi Arabia up until 1980. 1980. The Britons stopped it in 1807. 170 years earlier, Britain stopped it. And today you hear nothing about the Islamic slave trade. There was many millions more blacks who died from the Muslim slave trade than who died from the American slave trade. Now, the American slave trade is wicked. But if you look at the books, he even says this, the number of books written about how bad white people are is like this. Number of books on how bad Muslims are. Nothing. Number of books on how bad black people are. Look, write your books on how bad white people are. I will say amen. They're bad. But be fair and just add all the groups. They're all that way. And what's amazing is that only one group ever stopped slavery. And he says in here, it's so clear, the reason they stopped. Someone tell me, why did they stop it? Missionaries pressed it. What's that? Missionaries like Livingston. Missionaries. Missionaries stopped it. It was Christians. Everything good we have in the world was done by Christians. Everything. (laughs) Race and Culture is a fantastic book. It is interesting. It will shake your worldview. It will be hard to vote the same way when you're done. And his point is simply that if there is a difference between you and another group, it probably has to do with your culture. And, and he makes this point too, over and over. The, how do you know the best culture? The culture that will change the most quickly to take the goods from other cultures. He shows it over and over. With the Babylonians, the Babylonians learned from the, the Assyrians were on the top. The Babylonians looked at them and said, oh, look how they did it. The Babylonians copied the Assyrians. The Babylonians get on top. Then who beats them? The Persians. Who beats the Persians? Then the Greeks. Each time, the one that, the, the king said, oh, look what they did. They borrow what those guys did, and then they win. But today, we're not allowed to do that. That's called racism. That's ridiculous. Look at the Chinese if you want your kids to pass at school. Do what they're doing. Right? If, you've, if you see a group like the Somalians that's doing well, do what they're doing. Don't sit around and say, oh, it's racism, it's racism. Those words are used to trap you and keep you from excelling. And it actually traps whole people groups. Look around and grab anything good you can from the Romans. 
from the Europeans, from the Indians, from the Zulu, whatever good, grab it all and let your kids go as best they can for the glory of God. Father, help us tonight to love the word of God. Help us to think clearly about history and culture. Help us to love the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.